The ancient Romans had a myth. They believed in this mythical creature called the crocata. This mythical beast was said to be kind of like a wolf and native to India. It was a gluttonous animal who would dig up dead human bodies and prowl around farms during the nighttime. Interestingly, it was said that the crocata had the ability to mimic human speech. It was rumored that when hungry, the crocata would hide near the forest's edge of a human farm and it would listen carefully to people's conversations. Then it would eventually learn someone's name. And then when that person was all alone, they would lure the unfortunate person deep into the woods by calling their name in a human-sounding voice of distress, as if calling for help from the woods. Then when the person would go in the woods to investigate, the crocata would back up deeper and deeper and deeper and continue to call their victim's name. When the individual was deep enough into the woods so that no one could hear their cry for help, the crocata would leap from the shadows and then devour them as prey. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, this morning I want to remind all of us that our adversary, the devil, roars around like a lion seeking someone to devour. He wants to set a trap for you and for me. He knows exactly what kind of bait to use for us too. Things that look good, feel good, smell good, taste good, but that we know are not good. And then he takes that bait and entices us and slowly lures us into his realm. Remember, Satan doesn't play catch and release. He plays catch and destroy. That's the topic in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. The title of the message today is A Biblical Strategy for Fighting Temptation. Join me in the book of James. The good news about this is that if you look back through church history, all of the saints who knew God the most, those who had a heart for the Lord, those who really were serious about their faith, all of them got stuck from time to time. But wise people over the centuries devoted themselves to breaking through that kind of stagnation. And they engaged in a strategy to resist temptation. And that strategy is found in your text in front of you. Now, before we look at it, let me just offer you an invitation. The invitation is to ask the Holy Spirit to show you an area in your life where you know you're often tempted. The reason why, because sermons are practical. They're not meant for you to elbow your neighbor. They're meant for you. They're meant for me. And so what is that area in your life that you struggle with? Maybe it's an appetite. Maybe it's your temper. Maybe it's anger or pride, or maybe it's one of those acceptable sins or respectable sins like Jerry Bridges talks about, like unforgiveness. Or maybe it's just passivity. Or maybe your life is compartmentalized. You have this side of you that's really spiritual on Sunday mornings, but then you have this other compartment of your life for the rest of the week that's a little bit more indulgent. My invitation is just to allow the Holy Spirit to shine light on that area for a brief time this morning and invite him to do a work. In fact, let's pray that he might do that. Would you join me? Our Father and our God, we invite you to search our hearts. Bring to our minds any area that is displeasing to you, thought, word, deed, or motive. We might think of an area we've been struggling with recently or maybe something we've been struggling with for years. And God, it's not like you don't know. But we ask you to show us and we ask for your help and we thank you that when we come to you, 
It's because of your grace that we find power to deal with these issues. And so we invite you to have your way with us today. We pray this for Christ's sake and for his reputation. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Now, personally, I love the book of James. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Scholars agree, many, many New Testament scholars agree that James was probably the first letter written in our New Testament canon. The first one. That means before Matthew wrote Matthew, before Mark wrote Mark, before Luke wrote Luke, and before the beloved disciple John wrote the gospel according to John, God looked down from heaven and inspired someone that he loved and knew in a unique way his half-brother, breathed into him his power and caused him to write these words, from James. And we have that letter in front of us today. Isn't that amazing? What's cool is James was a skeptic. He didn't believe that his brother was really the son of God during the ministry of our Lord Jesus. He came to faith after the resurrection. And so that's kind of interesting to me in the providence of God that because God had not inspired any kind of scriptural book for the last 400 years, right? And then while Jesus was on the earth walking around and teaching, uh, James, his half-brother, was probably mocking him and scoffing him. In fact, it tells us in the Gospel of Mark that his brothers thought that he had lost his senses, And just all the while, while James was using his mouth to bring doubt and mock Christ, Jesus knew in the back of his mind, you know what, bro, if you only knew, you're going to be the first one to pick up your pen. Amazing. We pick up James in chapter 1, verse 13 today. And in this passage, you're going to see two things, the path for succumbing to temptation and then the power for overcoming temptation. The path for succumbing to temptation, and then the power for overcoming temptation. Join me in chapter 1, verse 13. If you're ready, say amen. 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 Let no one say, say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown brings forth death. Pause. First of all, there's a lot there. What exactly do we mean when we see this word uh, temptation in the scriptures? You see it four or five times here in the first couple of verses. That's the Greek word parasmas, and it simply means testing. Testing. For you technical folks out there, it's actually the same word used earlier in chapter one, and there it was translated as trials. But here, James is using the word with a different nuance. It has two different nuances. You might say, how does, that, how does that work? How can a word mean both trials and temptations? Those two things seem, seem very different. But if you translate the word as test, it can mean just a general test, or it can mean a moral test, which is what he refers to here, a temptation. And so allow me to define it this way. Temptation here means simply an inner enticement towards sin, an inner enticement Towards sin. Write that down. Actually, you see the word enticement there in verse 14. It says that a person is tempted when they're lured away and enticed. Very interesting words. Uh, these are the kind of words that you would see in Field and Stream magazine. The word lured, or NIV says dragged away, is a hunter's term which literally meant, literally meant to ensnare into a trap. The word enticed there meant to use bait to catch a fish. You know, the secret of great fishing is in the bait. 
the right kind of bait for the right kind of fish. How many fish are you going to catch with no bait? Zero. In this illustration, you and me are the fish. And so that brings us in the first step on the path of temptation. It's the step of deception. Step one, deception. My favorite book on this topic is an old Puritan classic from hundreds of years ago, written by Thomas Brooks. It's called Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices. I would encourage you to read that book. Uh, Here's what he says about this. Quote, Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook, to present the golden cup and hide the poison, to present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin, and to hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves at the very beginning. What is that bait that the enemy uses to entice you? What is that bait that's attractive to you, that would lure you in? The crazy thing about this is that sometimes we're looking at the bait and we know it's a trap, but we keep on nibbling. We're hungry. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Now, Pastor Dave, I can handle it. I know what I'm doing. I'm an adult. It's moderation. It's moderation. I'm not going to get hurt. I know how far I can go. That person has been deceived. What's the danger in a little harmless fantasy? The danger is you, what you flirt with, you fall for. What you flirt with, you fall for. The problem is what starts in your mind eventually comes out in your life, but it always begins in the mind, in the imagination. That's the whole point behind advertising. They try to get you to see something, to imagine something, and create a desire for that because they know if they can get you to imagine something, they've got you. And you'll eventually want to satisfy that desire. If that didn't work, nobody would advertise. We're silly to think that that doesn't happen. See, by watching, I think I'm not doing anything. Yes, I am. Sometimes they'll even pay you to listen to their spiel. Why? They know. If they'll just show you, they can get you. The Bible says sin starts in the mind and eventually comes out in the life and it wants to take you out. That's the deception. Genesis chapter 4 verse 7 says it this way. Sin is crouching at the door. It desires to dominate you. Next, I want you to notice in James chapter 1, when he talks about temptation, he does use the word when. Right? He doesn't say if you get tempted, maybe you might get tempted. It's possible you could be tempted. If perchance you happen to be one of the unlucky people in this world who faces it. No, no, no. It's 100% guarantee. It's inevitable. Just like trials in chapter 1 were inevitable, temptations here are inevitable as well. We will all be tempted. Even Jesus was tempted. Did you you know that? Hebrews chapter 4 says Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, and yet he sinned not. Whether you've been a Christian for five days or 50 years, universal. You will be tempted. That's important because there's a misconception out there that says when I accept Christ, all of a sudden I kind of got it all together and I don't face temptation anymore. Total mythology. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. It's common. That means we're all in the same boat. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Your temptation is not that unique. It's common. 
Which is important because sometimes we justify ourselves and our behavior and our sin by saying, well, my situation is unique. I am the exception. Beloved, can I say with all due respect, no, you're not. No, you're not. It's common to man. Notice he goes on to say, and God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is an amazing promise. God in his sovereignty will not let me, will not let you be tempted above your ability to withstand the temptation. He will always provide a way of escape. This is a special grace for you and I. Now that, great, that escape may not always be super obvious. It's a bit like being in a maze and you've got to kind of find your way out. But the escape is there and you must endure to find it. This is important because some Christians just kind of quit fighting. Uh, they're like the quarterback who sees the all-out uh, full-on blitz coming his way and he just hits the deck before they even get to him, right? They, they don't really want to get hurt. They, don't, they, they just kind of give up. They quit. But God expects more of us than that. Look look at the words of C.S. Lewis here. In his book, Mere Christianity, he says this, Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting it, not by giving in. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And so, beloved, we must endure. Go back to James chapter 1 for just a moment. That word endure there is so fascinating. It's the word hupomeno. I'm sorry, it's right there in, in, in 1 Corinthians 10. There we go. Hupomeno. It means to abide temporarily underneath a difficult situation. It's the same word used in chapter 1 of James, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures trials. So we are to endure trial and we are also to endure temptation. This is the most common word used in the Bible when it comes to how we are supposed to face any kind of difficulties in this life. Just listen to some examples with your ears. James 5.11. We count those blessed who endured. Matthew 10.22. And everyone will hate you because of your allegiance to me, but those who endure to the end will be saved. 1 Corinthians 4.12, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 4.5, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship. Hebrews 11.25, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. 1 Peter 2.20, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. Revelation 1.9, I, John, am your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus Revelation 2, 3, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. And finally, Romans 5, 3, we also exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about endurance. Friends, it's not just James, Peter, Paul, John, the writer to the Hebrews, even our Lord Jesus himself are all on the same page about this. When you face difficulties, when you face trials, when you face temptations, the command in the Bible is endure. The most common word used to describe your reaction to this kind of thing in your life is not pray, it's not have faith, it's not rejoice, it's not be encouraged. It is over and over and over again, endure. Now, I know that's not what you want to hear. 
Brother, regarding that difficulty and that temptation you face, best advice, hang in there. We want our difficulties to go away. We want our trials to go away. But the Bible teaches us this very carefully. What we are to do as Christians is to endure with perseverance. It leads me to address, I think, a common objection that arises among Christians, believers. They tend to think, well, why why do I need to endure? This is the age of forgiveness. This is the age of mercy. This is the age of God's grace. And so can't I just do what I want to do? After all, I've kind of got my hell insurance. What's the big deal? Why do I have to persevere and why do I have to endure? Let me just make a couple comments about this kind of logic. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Paul actually raises this question. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. God forbid. Look at Thomas Brooks again. This is wickedness at the height. This is a long quote, but hang in there. For a man to be very bad because God is very good... There is not a worse spirit than this in hell. Ah, Lord, does not wrath, yes, the greatest wrath, lie at this man's door. Are not the strongest chains of darkness prepared for such a soul? To sin against mercy is bestial. No, it is worse. To render good for evil is divine. To render good for good is human. To render evil for evil is brutish. But to render evil for good is devilish. And from this evil deliver my soul, O God. He goes on to say, there is nothing in the world that renders a man more unlike to a saint and more like to Satan than to argue from God's mercy to sinful liberty, from divine goodness to licentiousness. This is the devil's logic. And in whomever you find it, you may write, this soul is lost. Whoa. We can't play games with sin. Even the smallest sin sent the Lord Jesus to the cross. How should I relate to sin? As my enemy. You remember in the story of Julius Caesar, do you remember how Caesar was murdered? Do you remember after that, Antonius brought forth his coat. The coat was all bloody and cut up, and and Antonius lays it before all the people. And he says, look, here we have the emperor's coat. Here it is, all bloody, all torn. Uh, Look at this thing. Look at what they've done to our, our emperor. Look at this coat. And all the people look at the code and they say, ah! They go into an uproar. They cry out against those murderers. They ran to those people's houses who killed Caesar and they burnt them down. Listen to Brooks again. When we consider that sin has slain our Lord Jesus, ah, how should it provoke our hearts to be revenged on sin, which has murdered the Lord of glory? Sin is the enemy. Don't play games. Go back to the text in James chapter 1. Notice James says this kind of temptation does not come from God. If there's a moral test that comes into my life that results in a moral failure on my part, I can't blame God for that. The source of that temptation doesn't come from the outside, it comes from the inside. Theologians put it this way. They said, never mistake the occasion for the cause. Never mistake the occasion for the cause. Now, here's what that means. Let's say if you have a teacher, and the teacher gives you a test, and you flunk. Maybe you could say, if the teacher never gave me a test, I would have never flunked. It's the teacher's fault. No. No. 
the reason you flunked is because of some lacking of knowledge in you. Not because of the test. The test was the occasion. Your lack of knowledge was the cause of your failure. See that? So James says here, don't say it's God who's the one bringing these kinds of problems as if it's like this picture here. Like God himself is bringing down this temptation. We love to blame people, don't we, in our society? Whenever something goes wrong, especially if we're at fault, we start to blame game. I love passing the buck. It's not me. What could I do? Blame the culture. Blame the schools. Blame my parents of origin. Blame the government. Blame my environment. Blame my DNA. We'll look anywhere except the place we're supposed to look in the mirror. We're like little kids on the playground. No, he started it. No, it's his fault. Well, he said to me first, oh my goodness. Take some responsibility. Now, blaming God seems a little strange. At least it did when I was studying this text. In our culture, we usually don't blame God. We echo the words of Flip Wilson and say, well, the devil made me do it. But James says, no, no, look deeper inside of you. There might be a place in there that actually blames God for your behavior. And and we as human beings have a long history of doing that. Do you remember what happened in the Garden of Eden? As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, Eve says, no, it wasn't my fault. You know, the serpent over here. And then when it got to Adam, God, this woman that you gave me, God, it's kind of your fault. Proverbs 19.3 says, A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Hmm. James says, this isn't from God. That's not where temptation comes from. It's an inside job. It's more like this picture you see on the screen. It's my own desires pulling at me. I'm the problem. Instead of pointing the finger, I got to look at the real root, and that leads us to step two on the path towards temptation, doesn't it? Step two is desire. Desire. The word for desire here in the text is the Greek word epithumia. It means lusts, selfish ambition, or more appropriately, over-desires. In other words, something, it's, it, it's a good thing. It's okay. But I've made that good thing into an ultimate thing. I've made that good thing into something way, way, way too important. This is why in the Old Testament, God always likens sin to spiritual adultery. He says, I am Israel's husband. You are my bride. When you sin, you have indulged, you have committed a fatal attraction against me. It's where that emptiness on the inside, because God is not there, seeks to fill itself with something else, and then you got to have it. And that leads us to cross the line. Step three. Disobedience. I go from deception to desire to disobedience. I, I take that step. I transgress the law of God. I trespass. I actually indulge. I, I, I say the lie. I, I fudge. I indulge in something. I take the forbidden fruit, whatever that is for me. This is where we cross the line into actual outward disobedience. But that's not where it started. Remember, where did it start? Look, look at James chapter 1 again. Notice that word conceived. That's the image of conception. What an interesting word picture James gives us here. 
You see, all sin starts with a little embryo on the inside. It conceived inside of me first. And before I ever gave birth and committed the actual act of disobedience, it was conceived long, long, long before that. Let me just give you an example. Let's say you got fired because you lied at work. Why'd you lie? Well, maybe you wanted to look better than you actually are. Why is that? Well, maybe you were afraid, afraid of losing your job. And maybe your job for you was one of those epi desires. It was too important. It was too critical, too big. So you sacrificed your integrity to that idol. So your boss finds out and you lose your job. That's the death of your job. That's where sin leads ultimately, right? Death. But it all started at the conception stage. So you have to ask that question. What are those desires inside of me that are a little bit too big? What are those epi desires inside of me? Another way to get at this question is to ask it this way. What is that thing in my life that if I didn't have it, I would almost lose the will to live? If that thing was taken away from me, I would find that to be not just disappointing, devastating. What is that thing for you? That's what gets conceived on the inside. A common example of this is in the realm of professional athletics. A study was done recently on professional athletes who had a career-ending injury. They found usually depression sets in afterward, but it's not always physiological. Why do they get depressed? One doctor said it this way. Quote, it's simple. The injury sends them into an existential crisis because the loss of their athleticism has totally wiped out this re- their reason for being, unquote. And so after they poured everything into this sport, this career, in order to feel like something, it got taken away, and all they can do is self-medicate, uh, they become addicted, the consequences become horrible. But look, a w- long time ago, where was it conceived? That person found meaning in a place other than God, an idol, and that idol broke their heart, which every idol will ultimately always do. As a pastor, sometimes I'll, I'll speak to uh, a, a woman who feels kind of like nobody unless she's loved by a man, and, and that her desire is a good thing, Unless it gets too big. And the problem comes when when she bases her whole self-image around male affection. And as a result, sometimes she becomes not very selective with the right kind of guy. It will settle for whatever. And she drags her kids through all kinds of drama as a result of her epi-desire. Making huge mistakes with her life, huge mistakes with relationships. And the results could be terrible, but it conceived a long time ago inside on the inside first, right? Epi desire. I need this thing to be okay. One more example. Money. Less than 10 years ago, after the market crashed in 2008, did you know there was a number of high-profile suicides? The CFO of Freddie Mac hung himself in his basement. The CEO of Sheldon Good, a real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head. A French money manager invested for many of Europe's royal families slid his wrists. On and on and on. They had lost so much money that they had lost their will to live. Now, why? The reason is because their money became their epi-desire, their, their identity. It was everything to them now. And without it, they had no reason to go on living. Their money had become their god. Anything, anything that you substitute the real God for, any other little thing, will always disappoint you. This is why Jeremiah tells us in chapter 2, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that don't even hold any water. 
So James says, if you follow that epi-desire down the chain, it eventually leads to death, which is step four. It's the most serious step, death. What does that mean? Could mean physical death. Could mean death of a lot of things, I suppose. Death of your career, death of your relationships, death of your marriage, death of your own dreams and goals. Sin brings it with, with it death. The Bible's not kidding around when it says the wages of sin is death. It brings decay. It's not good. Here's the end result. It's, it's not pretty anymore. It's kind of a funny picture to put on the screen, but it's not funny if it's you. Sin is destructive. There are no harmless sins. No such thing. The language here that James uses reminds me of the language of Moses at the end of his life, warning the next generation to keep the law. I have set before you today life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you may live. This is why we call the series The Road Less Traveled. There are two roads. There are two ways being presented here. There are, there are two choices, or Puritan author J- John Owen says it this way, uh, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. That's something the enemy doesn't want you to know, right? When he throws the lure out there. But do you see the chain? Go back to this slide here. Death comes from the disobedience, comes from sin. Sin is conceived from the inside, coming from my desires. My desires get stoked and enticed through deception. This is what the Bible calls the devil's schemes. Look at 2 Corinthians 2.11. In order that Satan might not outwit us, we are not unaware of his schemes. One thing you can say about the devil is he's consistent. He's been using the same old bag of tricks for 2,000 years or longer. It's not hard to discover his process. It's not rocket science. It's right there on the screen. He's not that creative. It's the same old stuff. And what we learn from this, this, this path is that sin is a journey. You don't fall into sin like you fall into a hole. You fall into sin one step at a time, one choice at a time. You erode it, you erode your life away until it gets to the, the end here. But I don't think anybody wakes up and says, you know, I think, I think I'm going to have an affair and ruin my life, wreck my marriage, ruin my kids' life. Nobody wakes up and thinks that, but it, it kind of happens, doesn't it? It's the slow fade, the song says, by casting crowds, right? But it starts all the way at the beginning. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. I think that's a kid's song. It's not kid stuff. That's why James says in verse 16, do not be deceived, brothers. This is the deception. The word deceived there means a ship which got off course, which is not okay when it's your whole life. So what's the answer? What's the solution? Well, as I was studying the text, I, I didn't see the solution here until deeper study. And I thought the next couple of verses were kind of unrelated from this passage. I didn't see the connection between the next couple of verses and this passage. In fact, I thought he was changing the subject, which James seems to think seems like he does sometimes without warning. But then I said, "Wait a minute! No, 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 no! This is not a new section. Verses 17 and 18 is actually the solution to the problem that we just looked at. Look at it very carefully. Verse 17: Every good gift and every perfect gift 
is from above. From above. You see, the world tells us if there's a solution, uh, you know what, the problem is outside of you, you've got to look inside of you for the solution. Christianity says no. The problem is on the inside of you. If there's ever going to be a solution, if you have any hope at all, you better look above you. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's immutable. He doesn't change. That's what you need in your life. You need a north star. You need something that never changes, that's always true. You have to calibrate your moral system correctly. The way you do that is by using the word of God. He doesn't change. There is no variation. Verse 18, this is what he's done for us. Of his own will, because of his grace, he brought us forth by the word of truth that you heard that we should be kind of like the first fruits of his creatures. This is the first generation who's going to be followed by many generations of Christians. But here, James, one of the first fruits. Here he's teaching that our God is a good, good father, as, as the song says. He's unchanging. He's stable. Every single good gift comes from him. It's like this picture on the screen. Every gift coming down from above is from God that is a good thing. God is not up there sending you down temptations and making your life miserable. No, James says he sends you down good gifts, good gifts, gifts of wisdom for you, gifts of life for you, gifts of salvation for you, the gift of his son for you, and a better way to live, the road less traveled. And up there is where we need to fix our eyes. This is so important. It's so important. Please get this. The solution to temptation in the Bible is not self-help. The solution, to, the solution here in the scriptures is not like Nancy Reagan told us, just say no. That is not the solution in the Bible. The solution is not be like Ulysses and say, tie me to the mast and you know, keep me from falling. That, that is not the biblical solution to temptation. That's not it. It is not about your willpower. The problem with my will is it has no power. The will fatigues over time. The solution doesn't come from inside. The solution comes from above. The biblical reason for sin is below the will. You cannot find the solution at the realm at the level of the will. The problem is underneath the will in the realm that theologians call the affections. There's where the problem lies. The desires, the affections. Listen carefully. If the biblical problem is in the affections, the biblical solution must be found in the affections as well. Augustine called this disordered loves. There has to be a reordering of our loves. We must now have a new affection for God our Father in heaven. You see, the only way to break a desire in my soul is to show my soul a new and greater desire. This is what theologians call the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. And here, the greatest affection of our hearts is the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to C.S. Lewis. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. 
Our problem is not that we have these desires. Our problem is that we are far too easily satisfied. You're made for more. The reason why you fall into temptation is because in that moment, you have lost the beauty of Jesus Christ. You are not seeing the beauty of Jesus Christ in that second. And you don't see that he's so much better than whenever you're tempted by. See, your whole problem is you don't see how wonderful he is. That's why we call this series The Road Less Traveled, because there's two roads. There's this conflict going on in our hearts. There's a, a flesh and spirit conflict, and our flesh has these desires. But if you are a Christian, the Spirit of God lives on the inside of you, and the Spirit of God has desires as well. And what the Spirit of God desires is the person of Jesus Christ. The Spirit is in love with Jesus Christ. The Spirit adores Jesus Christ. The Spirit yearns for Jesus Christ. This is what our Lord said would happen. John 15, 26. He, the Spirit, will testify about me. John 16, 14. He, the Spirit, will glorify me. That's what the Spirit is always saying deep, 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 deep down inside of your heart. Look at him. Look at Jesus. Don't you see how wonderful he is? Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he lovely? Wouldn't you rather commit your life to him? Isn't living for him so much better? Focus on him. Fix your eyes on him. Meditate on him. Think about him and adore him until your heart finds him to be so much more beautiful than that stupid temptation that you need to leave anyway. That's the solution. The only way to break the power of sin and its grip on your heart is to show it something more beautiful. Just saying no is not going to do the trick. You must also say yes to Jesus Christ. And there's joy in following him. True joy. So when you think about that road that goes from Deception to desire, disobedience. You start that road all the way at the top. I'm not going to fall for your deceptions. I've got a new desire now. I've got a new affection now. His name is Jesus Christ. And I aim to please him. Take my life. Let it be consecrated to thee. My friends, always take the road which leads to him. Amen?